Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use. And wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hey, this is Dyke Drummond again from the home of the Happy MD in beautiful Seattle, Washington, with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. And I am here with the fabulous Ray Sneed of the Sam Sneed lineage, right, who is going to give us the first of what I hope is a series of lessons in how physicians and CFOs might start getting along at a different level. Uh, one of the things that's happened during the time that I've been working on helping prevent physician burnout is a bunch of mergers and acquisitions that are making bigger and bigger and bigger healthcare delivery organizations in the U.S. of A. More and more and more employee physicians. And what you run into immediately is what appears to be a natural conflict between people involved in finance and the doctors involved in caring for patients. And Ray is a very experienced CFO, CEO in the interim staffing space. Ray told me that he's worked as a CEO or CFO, either interim or permanent, in 13 different states. And I know Ray well enough to know that he's a friend of physicians like you and me. He gets us in ways that executives like him don't tend to get us naturally. So, Ray, welcome to the program. It's just a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation to be here and look forward to working with you. And then if you would, Ray, because, uh, again, your qualifications are foreign to us who have MDs and that kind of MPHs and stuff like that. You have some letters after your name. If you could just explain what those stand for, that would be great. Sure. Uh, as is the case in the uh, in the medical profession, there are fellowships in various disciplines, and the Healthcare Financial Management Association, that is kind of the affiliation or the credentialing organization for finance people, I have their fellowship with specialties in managed care and reimbursement. And I have a fellowship also from the American College of Healthcare Executives, which tends to be the group that C-suite administrative people gravitate to. And then um, I have a master's degree, which is kind of a required credential for a C-suite role. But then I took a graduate doctorate course, postgraduate study at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and I have a doctorate in health administ healthcare administration, and my dissertation was on uh, interim services, the first and only work of its type in the in the U.S. healthcare industry. Wow, cool! So you are a qualified resident of the Ivory Tower. I, I would uh, <laughs> plead uh, guilty to that charge, yes, sir. Okay, great. Well, and there's so much to talk about. Where do we begin? Here's what I would like to know: because you've been in so many different settings, right? You've been able to develop your own philosophy and way of relating to physicians and understanding what it is that we do. But you've also witnessed C-suite after C-suite after C-suite after C-suite and their attitude towards doctors. Tell me, in your own words, 
what senior leadership, especially CEO, CFO, that's the axis of power in most big organizations, CEO, CFO, along that axis, what is the classic attitude of a leadership team towards their physicians? Well, I should probably preface my response in general by observing that for the last 15 years as an interim executive, what you're doing in that case is following an executive that departed the organization. Very frequently departed uh, without giving notice, if you know what I mean, Uh, having been freed up to seek other activities. And usually what occurs before that happens is either dysfunction in the organization, performance not meeting expectations, or disagreement, philosophical disagreement on the direction of the organization. So the situation is typically more dysfunctional than it would normally be in a case where someone like me gets involved. And frequently, well, not frequently, I I would say in a fair number of cases, probably close to a majority, Uh, One of the causes is dysfunction with the medical staff. The most flagrant manifestation of that is when the medical staff goes to the board with a vote of no confidence, either with respect to the CFO or to the entire management team. When physician frustration reaches the breaking point, you'll see vote of no confidence from the medical staff. That's hard to overcome. And there's a lot that goes on, obviously, before generally before it reaches that point. And what are the most common, if there's a theme to it, what are the most common reasons why a medical staff might vote out a CEO? Well, I it, try not to uh, be too prevalent of, of stereotypes, but my observation is that physicians are scientists. They're trained as scientists. They practice as scientists. And They want to practice medicine. And I think one of the things that drives physicians crazy is when the bureaucracy of the organization or the dynamics of the organization interfere with their ability to do that. They get burdened with administrative tasks. They get caught up in drama that is they view as detrimental to their ability to practice medicine at the top of their of their license and become increasingly frustrated by what they perceive to be inability to get the organization to work with them on those issues. So it gets in the way of me practicing medicine and I appear to have no influence over the decisions that are being made that affect my practice. Correct. Cool. And then What is it that boils them over the top? What are some of the last straw issues when you've seen CEOs get booted? I think the probably inability to gain any traction, to accomplish anything, to get anyone's ear. You know, they they view their, their efforts as being unsuccessful. And so obviously a vote of no confidence is the ultimate escalation of frustration to a boardroom where they basically say, we've done all we can do and we've tried to play by the rules and stay within the lines. And there is no, we don't see a path forward. You know, the frustration has reached a level where they they have a hard time seeing a path forward. Gotcha. And by contrast... 
by contrast, in the organizations where you've been able to play a role, where you feel that the relationship between the leadership team and the physicians is a healthy one, what appear to be the, the building blocks and the leadership habits of a senior leader team, especially CEO, CFO, when it comes to building a healthy relationship with your physicians? I think I would cite the Mayo organization as a as an example of where that dynamic works well, where it is a physician-driven organization and the physicians have a lot of autonomy and they practice more or less independently of the administration. I think one of the analogies that I have used in in hospitals working with leadership teams is uh, the analogy of a university. You know, a university, you have the faculty is pretty much self-governed and independent. It's led by a provost. And the job of the administration is to make sure the buildings have lights in them and they're cleaned up and, and the systems work like they're supposed to. And the job of the faculty is, uh, is administration or education, as it were, administration of the degree programs of the education process. And they're fairly independent of each other. And to me, that, that works well in those settings. And that gets blurred, I think, in the case of a lot of organizations where there's not clarity of who's responsible for what, how to get things done, where is the authority. And the more that that is blurred, the more frustrated people become and the more effort they spend on initiatives that they're not going to gain traction or go anywhere. Well, and what I see over and over and over again is physicians, typically in community hospitals, non-academic community hospitals, where they've sold their practice to the hospital and the hot, they've gotten a little kick from the real estate partnership selling the buildings, right? Right. And, and perhaps the original partners got compensated a little bit. But now the doctor shows up in a practice where the buildings and the staff and the hiring and the firing and all of the financial records and everything is the responsibility of this employer. And it's clearly employer, employee. It's clearly, and I've come to start calling it this recently, it's clearly a quid pro quo. You hit your numbers, we'll give you your benefits and salary, right? Very, very linear. No partnership, no co-owners, no independent of the organization. And I think that that's perhaps the situation that majority of American physicians are in right now. What do you think makes a healthy relationship or some leadership habits that make a healthy relationship when we've got clearly employee-employer standard working-for-the-man setup as far as the business model goes? What I have experienced is what I would describe as a lack of proper management of expectations going both ways. There's a lot of focus on the deal and getting the deal done, and not much time and effort spent in a lot of cases, especially if the organization, the hospital is relatively new or inexperienced at this, you know, what are we going to do on day two? And so people go into these things with expectations or assumptions that, that may not be valid or may be difficult to validate 
in practice, and they have different ideas about physicians as employees, that's just not the kind of people that gravitate to medicine are independent by nature. Their training in medical school reinforces that. The decisions that they make in many cases are private, personal. I mean, they have the authority to make decisions that are going to affect the course of of outcome and life and death. And they're not used to uh, bureaucrats looking over their shoulder, telling them what to do. They're not used to punching the clock. And they don't like a lot of paperwork. And so when the healthcare organization makes an assumption that they're going to be an employee in the same kind of stereotype as everybody else in the organization, that's going to get them off to a bad start. And then can they recover from that is the next question. So employing a physician is different than employing a nurse. I would say that employing a physician is different than employing just about anyone. Managing expectations. I love it. I love it. Physicians, uh, you know, and I, I tell the, uh, I tell the, the board of directors, you know, when they're going through the credentialing process, sometimes that is handled very perfunctorily, which, you know, I think they should take that more seriously, be more deliberate about it, because I tell them, you have the authority to give someone the privilege to pick up a knife and cut into somebody. There's nobody else. There's no other discipline that has that kind of power and, and, and that kind of ability to grant a privilege to do that. And so that kind of relationship or authority doesn't exist anywhere else that I know of. And when you try to take that to me, what is very special and also very powerful construct and put it into the cookie cutter of a rank and file employee, it's going to be difficult to get it to work in practice. Well, and then I would imagine that, and again, I deal with, we deal with this a lot at the Happy MD is the whole concept of physician leadership leading the physicians that you would build a parallel structure of leadership, an administrative leadership, and then a physician leadership structure. So the doctors are managing the doctors. In your mind, what is the state of the physicians leading physicians on average as you've cruised through these organizations? I know what I think. I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, I think it depends on the... Uh the maturity of the organization in terms of how long it has been in the business of employing physicians, because I think they do get better with practice. I think it depends to a degree on the philosophy of the organization. Some organizations have a Theory X leadership philosophy. I don't know if you know about Douglas McGregor and Theory X and Theory Y, but one Theory X assumes that people are lazy they're ignorant, they're not motivated to work, they have to be compelled to do anything. And theory why assumes that people are naturally goal-seeking, they want to be successful, they want to be uh, have their work mean something to contribute to the organization. And so organizations that have a, a more, what I would describe as a regressive leadership culture, that's going to permeate the entire organization. So it's very highly situational dependent as to how that would go. And then the other thing I think has to do with 
the number of employed physicians. An organization, you mentioned a community hospital that's got a very small number of physicians employed, is probably not nearly as well equipped from an infrastructure standpoint or a working relationship to be geared up, as it were, to deal with employed physicians compared to one that's been doing it a long time and has a fairly large number of, of physicians employed. And I would lump physicians into theory why, right? Need meaning, need purpose. I talk about the light workers fork in the road. We chose to go into healthcare because we wanted to live a life of purpose and uh, be a helper and a healer. So if we run into somebody who thinks that people are basically lazy and you have to poke them to make them work, that's really not going to work very well. And the other thing that I've seen over and over and over again is bigger is bigger. It's almost never better because it separates you from the leaders that can make a difference to your practice. Correct. Cool. So another thing that you and I experienced together a little while ago was you introducing me to a group of CFOs, which was really cool. 20, I think there were 20 in the room. And I asked a question I'd always wanted to ask. I said to myself, I've been in front of lots of leadership teams. And I said to myself, I wanted to ask a question. And the question was, okay, all you CFOs, how many of you have ever shadowed a doctor and watched a doctor see patients? And there were 20 CFOs in the room and only three raised their hands. And then I asked, how many of you do that regularly? And only one hand stayed up. And he said, yeah, I used to work in manufacturing and we used to walk the line, which is like right on. So I was actually almost knocked speechless in that encounter because I realized that we had 17 people in the room who controlled billions of dollars of healthcare ins and outs. And they had never seen the sausage being made. I don't understand intellectually. I mean, my mind wants to blow up. I mean, I don't understand intellectually how you could manage the profit and loss statement for a multi-billion dollar healthcare delivery organization and never have watched a doctor do his work, except when you were at your doctor getting worked on. Explain to me how that can be true. I think it could be any of a number of factors. One is the old excuse, it's not my job. I have a chief medical officer. I've got a medical staff leadership. Uh, I've got the director of the business operation that the physicians are housed in. I got more important things to worry about. Uh, I think part of it is um, the people that uh, gravitate towards healthcare finance typically, and in some cases, are gravitating away from medicine because they can't tolerate what you see and hear and smell. I know in my own experience, uh, I have gone way out of my comfort zone several times to be in the operating room and invasive clinical areas like cardiology and so forth. And uh, it gives you a level of appreciation for what those people do that you can only get from doing that. But a lot of people, that's a huge barrier of fear to do that. And then there's also the, uh, the organizational politics the silos that exist. And in a lot of organizations, those silos are very rigid and it's verboten to go from my silo into somebody else's silo. Oh, okay. Turf. Okay. Exactly. And, uh, but in my personal experience has been that 
every time I have interacted with a physician about shadowing, they've gone way beyond uh, what I would have expected to allow me to see and experience uh, what they do. And in the, in the course of it, talk about some of the things that uh, are working well and things that are not working well. And as you point out, uh, without that, it's virtually impossible uh, for that kind of communication to occur. And I have been able to go back and, you know, then sometimes a physician is frustrated about something. They don't understand how it's working behind the scenes. And it's just a matter of going and making the call to the right person in the materials management department or the laboratory or, or the nursing division and, and tweak something that's driving them crazy that's really not that big of a deal. And everything is not, not necessarily a, a big problem. And sometimes what, we, what I would see is a little problem can make a huge impact on this individual's uh, satisfaction in their work. You know, I don't know why they don't do it either. They ought to. You don't have a hospital without physicians. Right. You know, you and I have talked a lot and, and you know, hopefully we'll be able to do some continuing work about connecting the dots between people not being impeded or impaired in their ability to do their work and, and the financial impact. And we know it's there. And I think the more that we can help illustrate and you know what that line of docs looks like help both sides to understand that or should not be hard but i think collectively we've made it hard through culture through internal politics through bureaucracy through poor communications and none of those things are going to lead to a better outcome if they're not addressed i was sort of shocked my dad was in manufacturing work for cummins engine company was all the way up to plant manager size and I know that there's a lot of people in systems management and quality who consider healthcare to be analogous to an assembly line. And it just sort of blew me away that a CFO would tell me, yeah, you know, back in manufacturing, we walk the line regular. It's like, hang on a second. Why not here? So my question is, um, and I just want to dig a little bit deeper into this because I'm trying to figure out how CFOs and doctors can just get along a little bit more effectively because peace between these two species is going to be really important going forward. But I know why a young person who is excellent at academics and driven to help takes that fork to go into medical school and to become a doctor. I know the psychographic. I know the typical story of somebody like that. In the finance world, if I'm coming up and I want to be a CPA or something like that, what would make me choose, yeah, I have to go into healthcare? What would make me choose healthcare as the industry for me to use my financial chops? Is there anything in that decision or does it turn out to be random or how, do, how have you found that works amongst your healthcare CFO friends? Well, I can tell you how it happened in my case. I started out in banking and I was recruited into healthcare. And prior to that, my view of healthcare was you don't go near a doctor or a hospital uh, unless you're um, carried in. You just stay away from it at all costs. And it, it never really had occurred to me that, you again, going back to the community hospital, which still comprises the majority of the country's healthcare. That's the biggest business in the community. 
there's more economic impact as a result of what's going on in a hospital than anything else in the community. And from a national standpoint, it's the largest single component of our economy other than government. It's now 21, 22% of our economy. There is a greater volume of business. There is more opportunity to practice more different specialties of business in healthcare than anywhere else. And there's no industry that even comes close to that in terms of the scale of opportunity, the magnitude of the transactions in banking. I may have never had authority to do you know, more than several hundred thousand dollars. And in healthcare, I've done transactions that go into nine figures. And so, you know, it is to man, it's a very fascinating place to be because it's a very dynamic environment. Uh, there's a lot of frustration in that on the finance side having to do with the funding and so forth. But, you know, I just don't personally, and I've done teaching of young people that are aspiring to be healthcare finance leaders at the university level. I don't personally think it gets any better if you're thinking about practicing finance as a career in terms of what you can do in that area. So the biggest game in town, uh, the biggest numbers around, the most complicated formulas and spreadsheets and calculations. So it's like uh, it's it's the major leagues. It is. Interesting. It is. Interesting. So, and I can tell you, see, I've not had this insight. I knew we were going to get there. And then it's like, hang on a second. What does a doctor think about their step from a private physician-owned practice into an employee setting? They consider that a step down. Right. So we've got the finance folks who think, I'm in the bigs. I'm in the show. Right. And we got the doctors going, oh, this is a terrible a rise from a higher uh, station into being just an employee. Interesting. Fascinating. And then I see the private equity folks and the folks the investor class coming in and picking off all the different tiny little pieces of the healthcare industry that are still profitable and rolling them up into privately held companies that they trade like, I don't know, chess pieces. It's crazy. There is a um, obviously a tremendous amount of money in healthcare. Uh, I mean, that's indisputable. The other thing, and you've probably seen some of the recent research, the Institutes of Medicine work from 2012 has been updated with meta-analyses that showing and revalidating the fact that 25 to 30% of what we spend in healthcare in this country is waste. And so it, I mean, you take 25% waste with the proportion of the gross domestic product that's in healthcare. That's what all this private money is going after. And you're exactly right. They're picking off the pieces that are profitable to the hospitals and to the doctors and reforming those to extract a return for investors. And uh, it's in some cases leading to fragmentation that it's probably not going to be good, uh, at least from the provider side of the business. But that's where all that money's coming from. You just get that much money sloshing around and the magnitude of potential opportunity just to do nothing more than capitalize on reducing waste and loss. And I don't see that changing anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I talk to people about when you're looking for a job 
and you want to believe that you will find a place where you have some influence on how your practices run, right? And some influence on how the decisions are made in the department. And it won't be simply based on financial decisions that are handed down to you. You have to look at the structure of the organization that you're joining. And the least physician-friendly structures that I have seen are ones that are backed by private equity. Unless you were an original shareholder of the company that hit a profit point when you where they were bought out in the initial wave, if you come in after that and you're just a working stiff for a private equity-owned firm, it's not likely to end well if you are thinking you're going to have any kind of professional independence here. I think that gets back as what we were saying earlier about expectations, uh, what is the motivation? And, you know, I think that physicians have different reasons. When my experience doing these transactions, physicians have different reasons for selling. In some cases, it's an exit strategy. As you mentioned, they want to cash out the real estate and, and start getting ready for retirement. In other cases, and I think this is more prevalent of younger physicians, you know, they have seen their parents uh, literally work themselves to death and they're not going to do that. They just want to punch the clock and go home. They've seen their, their parents literally work themselves to death and they want to have a life and they want to, they don't want to be working 24 7, 365. And then in other cases, physicians are finding it increasingly difficult because of the, the impossible mechanics of billing and collection that they are looking for a more stable income or looking for a way to maintain a minimum level of income. And they don't typically look beyond the one big thing and fail to appreciate all of the other stuff that's going to come along with it when they close the transaction. Yep. So the take home message I'm sort of getting from this first conversation between you and me is that it's not that doctors and CFOs just don't get along. It's that we are each playing a role on a stage that is not only enormous in terms of the valuations and the dollars and the money flow and enormously important in every community. It's also enormously complex. Oh, it is. With lots of different trajectories of mergers and acquisitions and incentives and expectations and all of those things that need to be uh, taken into account when an organization changes its operations directions and its leadership uh, functions. Wow. And, you know, the other thing that happens, there can happen that sometimes people don't think through is physician may do a deal with the community hospital and they don't know a whole lot and don't look in a whole lot into the, the status or the direction, uh, the strength of the hospital. And they wake up one morning and they find out this hospital has been acquired by a for-profit. Right. Or that it's been put under a management agreement by a for-profit organization. And there's no, the local control is basically contracted out. Right. And so the deal that they thought they were getting into is changed by forces that they have no control over. 
And, you know, I don't know if that should be considered in the contracting process or not, but if the other side of any transaction changes, it's just like a construction project. You start a construction project and and the, the contractor goes bankrupt before the project is done, you end up with a different contractor and you're basically back to square one. And so that's a phenomenon that I think physicians get swept up in that they didn't anticipate the potential of it or discounted the probability of it. And all of a sudden, a deal that was working well changes dramatically because of something that happened on the other side of the transaction. Right. And that same doctor now has a junior and a senior in high school and doesn't want to move or get a new job. And then if we want to chunk that down into a segmental fashion, you know, the ER group that's always man, the ER, the hospital voids the contract, brings in one of the national outsourcing companies, and your only choice is to sign the new contract for less pay. But now your leadership has been sent to Omaha or Nashville or whatever. Holy moly. Holy moly. And we thought all we had to do was talk to the people on site and uh, make sure that they gave us a good nurse. <laughs> To be honest, that's one of the main reasons that I went into interim work. I mean, I you get the same thing as an employee, whether you're a doctor or not, a physician or not. And uh, one of the main reasons that I went into uh, interim services is that I burned out on all this these very same dynamics that exist within an organization, and I didn't want to move either. But the thing about interim work is that it's a it's a lifestyle thing. You have to be prepared to be away from home for weeks and months at a time. And like everything else, it has advantages and disadvantages. One of the advantages is that you're relatively insulated from these kinds of factors that can uh, make it really hard to want to get out of bed and go to work in the morning. Yeah, because you know you're interim from the start. Correct. It's sort of like being a locum tenens physician you know this isn't a permanent position. It is very similar in uh, construct and and execution to locum tenens. Great. So when it comes to leadership and business models and CFOs and that kind of stuff, what would be a skill set or an awareness or words to live by that you would like to tell doctors, the doctors who are listening to this broadcast right now, when it comes to having a healthier relationship with your employer, what would you want them to know from your perspective? Well, I think that um, one of the first things that comes to mind is that if you want to have a friend, you have to be a friend. And it's, you know, it's almost like a marriage where you got to do your half and half of the other half and both sides have got to be doing that simultaneously in order for it to work. It's a, uh, a matter. Hang on a second, Ray. Did you say you got to do your half and half of the other half? Is that what you just said? Both parties have got to be doing it <laughs> simultaneously. Anybody that's married knows how that works. And uh, the other thing that is that I have that a, uh, seen as both as, as as college faculty and in practice is it surprised me the number of physicians that will make a decision to go to, uh, they'll enroll in a in an MBA program so that they can learn more about how the hospital really is working from an administrative and a financial side. In some cases, they have career aspirations 
to get out of medicine and into the practice of administration on the medical side. And that helps them be more better qualified for that. But I think in a lot of cases, it's just by a matter of interest in understanding how the system is working. Yep. And one of the things that I say is when you as a physician are in a position where a non-physician administrator has the ability to say yes to your request to do something special in your practice, that yes is going to be predicated on you having a relationship with them. Correct. Which means you, you have to visit them at a regular interval. And I tell people how to manage your boss, look upstream, who is the most influential person in the leadership tree, make sure you're having coffee with them at least once a quarter. And when you're with them, never get angry, right? never whine, never accuse them of having the classic, and I'm going to say it, shit for brains and storm out of the room because every other doctor they interact with is doing exactly that. And you don't want to be seen as just another one of those whiny doctors. Well, what uh, reminds me of the, the line from the sheriff in Cool Hand Luke, what we have here is a failure to communicate. Yep. And, and my practice has shown me that most problems, I, I don't want to say all, that's a, that's a too inclusive word, but a high majority of the cases, what you find at the root cause, even, even on uh, medical accidents in hospitals, is related to communications. It starts with that. Typically, the business part of it or the technical part of it, people like us can, can understand it, sort it out, understand what's not right. But the, the problem is usually boils down. And if you look at that, I'm very interested in aviation, but if you look at the uh, aviation accidents, it's just scary the degree to which communications is a root cause of a bad outcome. And so if you're cognizant of that, and as you point out, you know, it needs to be carried out in the right way because the communication of somebody throws down their pen and, and stomps out of the room, you know, that's going to leave an impression that's, that's going to be hard to overcome. And so I think communications, you can't say enough about how important it is to try to foster communications, to build relationships, to go more than your share of the way, you know, at least you can sleep well. If it's not working, if you've done your share and, and then some to try to bridge some of these gaps, then then at least you can sleep well and know that you have put forward the effort to get over that hurdle. Yep. When you're in the middle of a bureaucracy and you are an employee where someone else other than you controls all of your work conditions, the facilities, the staff, the hiring, the firing, the onboarding, the, the keeping track of your performance. Managing relationships up the chain of command becomes a piece of optimizing your career. If you choose not to have regular meetings to get along with the folks up the chain of command from you, you have no influence. And unfortunately, it often does not work out well. That is one of the realities of being an employee and one of the missing skill sets they will never, ever teach you in medical school. <laughs> well, that's true. And, you know, in, in some cases, uh, I have run into a lot of physicians and, and organizations that didn't even know what that map looked like. If you ask them to draw an organizational chart, they get it wrong. And then they're frustrated because they're talking to this guy over here about something and they're 
they're not even talking to the right person. You know, understanding how that hierarchy is built and, and where the authority rests. And then there's two kinds of authority. There's the authority that says, you know, who's got the chair in the, in the corner office. And then there's the authority that says who can and will get something done and who can make something happen. And so understanding that the fact, the dynamic that it might be the people that you would not normally expect are the ones can get things done. And those relationships need to be fostered as well. Right on. Well, Ray, thank you very much. This is going to be an ongoing conversation with you and me as we hone down, hone down, hone down to some practical tips for these doctors. But I'm really struck by the difference between a CFO thinking, I'm in the show, I'm in the major leagues, I'm at the top of the heap, I'm in the biggest industry in any geographic area, going to be healthcare, right? And the doctors who are now employees, if they're old enough and and long enough in the tooth to remember being in a physician-owned organization or in their own private practice, probably see employee status as a step down from something they felt was better in the past. Cool. Is there any last thing you want to do or say or ask for right now to give us a pausing point? No, I'm, uh, again, I'm honored to be invited to participate in this discussion ongoing. I'm looking forward to the feedback. Uh, I'm interested in the uh, the feedback, positive or negative, and especially if you disagree, that's probably the most important feedback of all. And the questions that get raised as a result of this will help both of us uh, be more effective in uh, the messaging in the future, or at least addressing points that are high on the list of importance for the folks that might be watching this. All right. So leave a comment. Let us know what you're thinking about these kind of discussions. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This is Dyke Drummond at the home of thehappymd.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington, with the latest Physicians on Purpose podcast. Hey, Ray, what do you think? What do you want to call this one? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) A doctor and an administrator in the same room for longer than 15 minutes. How about that? There you go. There you go. Right on. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much, Ray. Really appreciate it. Hey, I do too. And uh, look forward to the uh, next steps. Right on. Take care. 